Hi, you've just downloaded or otherwise accessed a podcast of Cross Point Church and the teaching ministry presented through our weekly Sunday morning worship. Feel free to burn a copy of this file when you're finished and pass it along to a friend you think might also benefit from the teaching. We hope you enjoy the message today, and thanks again for taking the time to visit. Show of hands, how many have heard the term, or you're familiar with the term before, cultural Christianity? You've heard that somewhere in some context. It's probably been in the context of <clears throat> a religious setting, a radio program, a church setting, a, a, a book maybe that you've picked up. And we are, for the next eight weeks, <clears throat> going to examine cultural Christianity really in light of the Scripture, in light of does the scripture line up with what you and I understand in our culture to be modern day Christianity or Americanized Christianity or does it not? And we'll look at that in several different lights. Um, it's, it's, I think it's going to be a stark contrast in some cases to what we've always known, what we've always thought about, what we've always considered to be true. Uh, so I hope this truth will challenge us. Wikipedia, and I don't put a lot of stock in Wikipedia, but Wikipedia says that a cultural Christian is a secular or non-religious individual who still significantly identifies with Christian culture. I think it's totally wrong. In fact, I think that's totally flipped. I think a cultural Christian is a, is a Christian who still identifies very closely with the culture and not the other way around. I think we'll see that kind of unfold in, in these next several weeks. And I, and I hope yours as mine will be uh, your belief system and your, your experience uh, especially in the South, of your faith is going to be challenged. Tonight we're going to look at, at cultural Christianity in light of genuine, true discipleship. What is that? Is that something we're a part of? Is that something we're engaged with? So are we, are, do we find ourselves in, 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 in this disciple mode of following him in that way? Well, he's got a lot to say about that himself, and we're going to see what he says in Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 14. We're going to look at this in two different passages, in two different lights. First, this this costly endeavor that discipleship is in Luke 14, and then the life-changing experience that it can and should have in our life. Now, Luke 14, verse 25, and we'll read down through verse 33. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. For those who, don't, who do not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciples. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king was about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, this costly endeavor involves walking away in three instances here that we see in this text. First of all, walking away from family. Look at verse 26. This is harsh, harsh language in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, strong language, isn't it? Hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, even life itself. That person cannot be 
my disciple. Now, what I want you to see here, first of all, is hate is not literal in this context, but it is comparative. What I mean by that is he is saying that being a disciple of mine and following me and knowing me intimately, the relationship you have with family, the relationship you have with brothers and sisters, with mom and dad, your immediate family, your extended family, could be compared to hate compared to the relationship you have with me. But my relationship is not like that very often. Is yours. My relationship is not comp- comparatively speaking. I don't, I don't have the, the hatred for my family in comparison with my love and devotion for him. There's not that great a contrast with me. I don't know if there is for you or not. But that he's using the hate in terms to contrast those, those connections, those emotions, those feelings, those commitments. Um, and this is, a, this is a radical statement from a radical himself. In fact, crowds followed him to a great extent because he was pretty, pretty radical. And, and though you and I are sitting here in relative freedom tonight to share together in truth and to hear his word and to sing and to worship and to talk about him and to fellowship and shake each other's hand and love on each other, a great part of the world has a more costly faith than you and I have tonight. A great part of the world is making great sacrifices, many of whom are walking away from family to follow Jesus. Uh, Jerry and I, about a year ago at this time, sat at a conference and heard a, a Chinese pastor um, tell those very stories of he and his family being beaten and, in fact, left for dead many times and his family ostracizing him because of his faith in China. That's not going on not only in China but in many parts around the world. Folks are walking away from family, many Muslims walking away from family to be able to follow Jesus. Now they're worshiping him in secret. They're fellowshipping with him and studying about him in secret. But they've walked away and been ostracized from their family to do so. Well, that's what he wants us comparatively to think in terms of following him, that we're willing to walk away from everything and everybody that's precious to us so that he can have a paramount place. That doesn't look like cultural Christianity in the world you and I live in. I don't know about you. Secondly, we're to walk away from comfort. Look at verse 27. And those who do not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, the word cross is the key word in this verse, and it is in that, in that day and time, and we, I think we've lost some of this as years have gone on, but in that day and time, the cross was not only a symbol of death, but a symbol of torture. So that if you were to take up your cross and follow him in another gospel, talks about doing that daily. If we're to daily take our cross up and follow him, we're going to, into a hard place. We're going into a difficult place. He says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, You're going to find yourself in a hard place. Here's my question. Have you experienced a faith like that? Has your faith taken you a place to where it's difficult to follow him? It's difficult to talk about him. It's difficult to pray. It's difficult to have conversation about. If if we are in our our culture, in our our modern-day Americanized culture Christianity, and we've talked about this to a great extent in weeks past, about how our culture accepts this concept of God, but when you bring up the name of Jesus, something drastically changes. The, 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 the emotions change. The dynamics of conversations change. People start to step away a little bit from, from folks who are that radical enough to start talking about Jesus. God can mean a lot of things in our culture. In fact, there's, there's a story in today's paper, perhaps you read it or you've seen the story recently, where Anderson County is putting up in God We Trust across the top of the courthouse. And uh, there was a, a writer in today's paper who was against that very thing happening and, and saying that, you know, God can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, but we know who it means. In essence, he was, I'm paraphrasing, but we know what it means to you Christians. And it should mean something to us Christians. And it should, have on a, it should take on a context where it changes 
the dynamic of our conversations, our relationships, the way we engage people. And it's costly, he says here, that, and, he, and he uses the cross to symbolize that very thing. He says it's, that the walking with him is going to be difficult. Here's what I'll submit to you. You can agree or disagree with it. This is my opinion. This is not scripture. So I want to be careful about that. Here's what I would submit to you. I would submit to you that about 60% of our efforts, our energies, the, the, our, the, the work of our hands, the, the paychecks, the things we glean to, to pay bills and do life and live, I would submit to you that in, 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 in the culture you and I live in, about 60%, and for most folks, about 60% of that is about need. And about 40% of that is about things over need, wants, desires, maybe even luxuries. In our culture, we, we've defined needs differently than the Scripture defines them. And, and we're, I think, being, being Amer- our, our culture is being Americanized to, to Christian faith. Here's why I say that is because we are um, somehow, even as churches, uh, I read an article um, about two weeks ago. It was, or I read a publication about two weeks ago that was really, it was the front page of this publication. I read it online. The front page of this publication was, was lauding and praising a church for its 20, $21 million campaign to build new facilities. Nothing wrong with any of that. But the story that was... Here's, here was a story on the front page, and, and here's another story on the front page. And this story down to the lower right was lauding the same congregation and the same, well, the same area of, of, uh, from the same town, people from the same town, raising $5 million to feed a tribe in Africa. $21 million to build bigger buildings for us to worship in and have nicer space. And $5 million to feed the world. What's wrong with that picture? There's something drastically wrong with that when we look at the Scripture. He says here that walking with me needs to be difficult. It not only should be difficult, I'm, I'm, th- I'm thinking he's saying it needs to be difficult. If walking with me is easy for you, and he's saying to us, if walking with, with me is easy for you, if this thing of being my disciple is an easy follow, something's wrong with that follow. He said it should be difficult to walk with me. There should be some hardship to it. Now, do we go looking for hardship? No, we don't. But it is, there should be some hardship that come from those kinds of things. And the reason I say that probably 60% of our, the sum of our pursuit, pursuits are about need and, and the others are not is that compared to the world, to about, to, to about 90% of the world, if you have a place to live, whether you own it or rent it, if you have a place to live, a mode of transportation, and more than three changes, three changes of clothes, you're wealthier than 93% of the population of the globe. In fact, you're in the upper 3% of population of the globe. If you have three changes of clothes, some mode of transportation, and a place to live. And you take transportation out of the, out of the, 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 the equation. And, and in the south, it's a little different in, in, in the north and northeast when, when people are, where people are more congregated. There's public transportation. It's affordable. And a lot of people in, in the northeast don't have cars, understandably so. If you've ever been to the northeast, northeast, you see why, because it's like this and where you drive. People have cars. But in the south, our culture and our, and our geography and our topography is more spread out. And to get to work, you need transportation. It's a basic need in our culture. Uh, I don't think you necessarily find that in Scripture, but you and I would probably agree that it's a basic need. However, um, in biblical times, there was, needs were defined differently. And I think what he's saying in this verse is this. How much of what you do, how much of your cross is about what you need versus what you want? How much of what you do is, is, makes it costly to follow me? Thirdly, 
Not only does it force us to walk away from family and away from comfort, but, but walk away from possessions. He speaks to that in verse 33. In the same way, in the same way as this sto- these two stories that he's told about the war and about uh, building a building, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. In essence, he's saying there's got to be more to life than accumulation. If the sum of your life is about the things you accumulate, there's got to be more to life than that. And if, that is, if that's the direction that, that you've been taught and you've seen and you've known and you're modeling the very things that you saw, perhaps in the home you grew up in or the people you've admired, if it is more than the sum of accumulation, then perhaps you're going somewhere. But if the sum of your pursuits are the things we accumulate, he says we're going we're to find ourselves at a very empty end because he said, you need to be willing to walk away from everything to follow me. Now, does that mean, is that literal? You, you think, Tim, are you saying we should go home and sell all of our stuff this week and put it all on eBay and we come back next week penniless? And we'll, if that's what God's, God's called you to do, yes, that's absolutely what I'm saying. If that's not what he's called you to do, you and I need to live at a level of obedience, willing to do whatever God asks. And that's, I think, the crux of that verse to say, whatever I ask of you, are you willing to do it? If it's to go there, if it's to give that away, if it's to move here, if it's to let this job go so that you can pursue something that's more, are we willing to do whatever he says? Whatever he says, whenever he says it. Everything means everything. And in essence, he's saying, if what you have has a hold on you, if it has an attraction, if this idea of, accu- of, of accumulation is, is such that it's been the sum of your, accumulation has been the sum of your pursuits, or there's going to be a thin walk to, to your existence with me. And I guess the real question at the, at the end of that is, what do you desire more than anything? What do you want more than anything? Because that's what you're going to pursue. If you want him more than anything, you're going to pursue him more than you pursue other things. If you want other things more than him, that's going to be the sum of your pursuits. Um, turn to Luke, back a few pages to Luke chapter 9. This won't be on the screen, so if you don't have a Bible, you just have to trust my, my reading this to you. But if you think he's not serious about this, if you think this is just a one-time event that he's talking here to the, to, to the crowds who are following him, I want you to see these verses um, in Luke chapter 9. As they were, uh, verse 57, sorry. As they were walking along a road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In essence, I have no home. I have no place to call home. If you're going to follow me, you're going to be homeless. You cool with that? He goes on. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, now watch this. Nothing wrong with going to bury your father. That's a noble thing. Look at what Jesus says to him. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Stark stuff. Verse 61. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Willing to walk away from his family. Look at Jesus' response. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, this isn't some radical Paul. <laughs> this isn't Peter who's, who's seen some vision on top of some guy's house. This is Jesus himself saying, if you want to follow me, here's the cost. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to be in with me, here's the cost. There's a cost to pay. Are you willing to pay it? He's serious about that. Let's look at uh, in, 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 uh, in Luke chapter 5. Turn back there. And I want you to see these verses of, of Jesus' call on Simon, James, and John 
and it is a life-changing experience for them, it should be for us. This same call should be reflected in our lives and how we interact with him and with others. One day, verse 1, one day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night, haven't caught anything. And I imagine this long pause is probably even longer. In fact, I imagine when Jesus says, Put out into deep water and let down the nets, Simon, the professional fisherman, looks at Jesus, this teacher, and says, We've we fished all night. We haven't caught anything. And I imagine a long pause, and then Jesus looking at him like, Okay, because you ask, we'll go out and put down the nets. We've worked hard all night. Because you ask, we'll let down the nets. Verse 6. When they had done so, they caught a large number of fish, that their nets, so large a number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their, their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' feet, or fell at, uh, at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, from now on you'll catch people. So they pulled their boats up to shore, left everything, and followed him. Now, I want you to see this life-changing experience in, in three calls here in this text. First of all, the first call is to a deeper place. And that's where he calls Peter in verse 4. He had finished speaking, said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down. Jesus had walked up. They were there cleaning the nets. You know the story. He asked Simon, Let me, can I commandeer your boat? And they put off shore, I would guess, probably something around the, around the, in, in terms of probably 15 to 20 yards. And that was for acoustic reasons. Had no PA systems, probably thousands of people on the shore. The water reflects sound. And so to put off in the boat, he, he wouldn't have had to yell to the people to, to communicate to them. He could spoke in a normal tone of voice and water reflects it and they can all hear. He gets finished teaching, tells Peter, let's go out into deeper water. Now, <clears throat> deeper water, I, I, I'm not a huge fisherman, but I've I fished enough to know that deeper water is not where the fish are caught. If you're going to catch fish, you need to catch them around cover. You need to catch them around the bank. You need to catch them around obstacles. You need to catch them around, around topography that comes that gives cover or comes out or make, makes a jut out so that the fish are there for cover. In the deep is where the current is. And the fish can't stay in one place against the current. Or they can, but it's a lot of effort. So they move over closer to the bank where there's less effort. The current's much slower. There's more cover, and, and, the, and, the, and the, it's easier to stay in one place and look and stand there and just kind of tread water, more or less, and look for things to come by to eat. That's basically the, the mind of a fish in, in 30 seconds there. Thanks. Um, but they're out in the deep. And in the deep, Peter, you know, he looks at Jesus. Jesus says, let's go out in the deep and let the nets down. And as I said before, I imagine Peter gives him this look like, you know, between me and you, I'm the professional here. You know, I know where fish are caught, and they're not caught in the deep. And by the way, we fished all night already, and there's nothing to just the fish are gone tonight. It's not a good night. But because you ask, we'll do it. So you know the story. They goes out, pulls in the fish, more fish than they can catch. And the, and the whole idea here, 
behind this is that a deeper place, in fact, there's more danger in the deep. The, 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 the current is stronger, the winds are stronger out in the center, center of a channel on a lake or the ocean or anywhere else. There's far more danger out there. Consequently, more trust is required to go into the deep than it is to stay over in the shallow. In the shallow, if there's error or something happens falsely, I can get to the shore fairly quick. If there's error out in the deep, I'm in the deep. And I may be in too deep. What he's saying here is, in essence, metaphorically, is, Peter, I want you to walk in a place that's unfamiliar to you. And the deeper place for many of us in our faith is an unfamiliar place. Why? Because we know some Bible, we know some scripture, we've sung a few songs, we can... We know enough religious jargon and enough church speak to, 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 to come across okay in most settings. But boy, a deeper place with him is something we've never experienced before. It's something new to most believers. I would submit to you that most believers don't walk there. Very few do, in fact, because there's a cost involved in walking in a deep place with him. But there's so much to be learned in a deep place with him that you can't get in the shallow. That's why he calls Peter there. Let's go out in the deep. I want to show you something. I want to teach you something that only you can learn in the deep. You can't learn it over here. I know you think you know what's going on over here where, the fish, where you think the fish are. I want to teach you something in the deep. I want to take you to a deeper place to show you something you've never seen before. He's saying that very same thing to us today. I want to take each of you to a deeper place to show you a part of me, a side of me that you've never seen before. In seeing that, your trust is going to be far easier the next time you get in the deep. And then the next time your trust is going to be even easier. And the next time... And you establish this track record of faith that moving into a deeper place with him, had you never done the first time, you would have never known, would have never experienced before. Why did Peter go there? The only exposure Peter had to Jesus was found back up here in verse 1. The crowds were crowding around him, and he was listening to what? The Word of God. So what Jesus was doing was taking the Scripture, probably, it doesn't say here, but probably the prophets, teaching from the prophets in the Old Testament. And he was, he was exposing them to the, to, the, to the truth of the prophets and in, enlightening them to, as to probably who he was in light of that. In other words, you're seeing this prophecy fulfilled or, or those kinds of things. He's revealing probably prophecy to them and doing it in a way that they're captivated by it. And Peter was too, fairly unintelligent man, but captivated by the story of the Scripture and the fact that Jesus probably interjects himself in the middle of that. That's the only exposure that Peter had before he asked him, can I borrow your boat? Can we put out a little ways? Peter was influenced enough by the word of God to say, okay. Instead of, you nuts? I don't know you. Who do you think you are? First encounter here. Luke writes chronologically. So this is the first encounter that Peter had with Jesus. So based on the word of God, Peter moves into a deeper place. Here's, I think there's a great lesson in that for you and I too, and that is, does God's word have enough authority in your life that you're willing to adjust your schedule around it? You're willing to adjust your beliefs around it. You're willing to adjust your values around it. You're willing to adjust your finances around it. You're willing to adjust your child discipline around it. You're willing to adjust your marriage around it. Does it have enough impact in your life? You're willing to adjust your life around it. Peter did. He did so willingly, but probably a little bit skeptical too. And Jesus said, that's okay. <laughs> I can handle skepticism. But get in the boat. <laughs> Don't be skeptical at the bank pointing your finger. Get in the boat with me if you're going to be skeptical. I'm okay with skepticism. I'll teach you through the skepticism. Come on. We'll learn some things. We'll go out in the deep and learn some things. But you'll never learn it staying on the bank. Secondly, 
Not only does a life-changing experience call us to a deeper place, it calls us to more than we've ever known. Verses 6 and 7 speak to that. Look at this catch. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats to full that they began to sink. The catch revealed what the guide already knew. I don't know if any of you have ever been fishing with a guide. I've been fishing with a guide one time. Leanne's brother Dean and I went. He lived in Florida at the time, and, and I'd always wanted to fish Okeechobee. Heard a lot about fishing at Lake Okeechobee. It was a couple of, couple of hours' drive from where we were, so he said, let's go down to Okeechobee. And he knew the guide. He'd already used this guide down there. He said, I know a guide. He'll turn us on to some fish. Sure enough, we get down there. We get everything going, get the guide. We're in the boat. We're heading out. <clears throat> And the guide stops the boat and slows the boat down. And we're pretty much in the channel. Now, we're about probably 70 or 80 feet from the bank, but we're pretty much out in the channel. The, 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 the edge of the bank was somewhat rough, but it was, we're still a good ways away. And I, he stopped. And he said, bait up. We're going to fish right here. And same thing Peter thought. Now, I wasn't much a fisherman. This was the guide. So I didn't say anything. So we bait up. And we probably fished 45 minutes. And the reason we didn't fish longer is we had so many fish in 45 minutes, we didn't know what to do. In fact, I can't remember. We, we, probably between us, we cast 60 or 70 times, and of those 60 or 70 times, there's probably four or five we didn't have a fish on the line. I mean, this guide turned us on to fish. The guide knows where the fish is. And that's a whole illustration here to say, I know better about what you do than you do. I know better about... I know more about TVA than, than Randy does. I know more about whatever it is. That, I know more about being a, a fire chief than Gary does. I know more about teaching than Vince. I know more about, he knows more about what you do than you do. And the sooner we get that, the sooner we understand that he knows more about our, even our vocation. Yes, absolutely our vocation. He knows more about what we're doing than we do. The sooner we get that, the easier it's going to be to give that to him, <laughs> to give our vocation to him to say, God, You've got a means to an end here that I don't even get. I don't understand. I'm willing to follow you because I know you know more about me and what's best for me even what I'm doing to do it better than you do. He showed the fishermen where to fish. Skeptical fishermen. And he hauls in more fish than, than they could handle. Um, <laughs> just like blowing the professionals away that day, he'll blow, he'll blow your trust away. If you'll put the trust to him in a deeper place that doesn't make sense all the time, he will blow that trust away 10 times out of 10. And we've got to trust it. And we've got to move to a deeper place to make that happen. The third thing is this. The third call is not just to a deeper place and more than we've ever known, but to total abandonment. That's what he talks about in verse 11. So they pulled their boats up on shore. About to, about to sink. They finally get them to shore. They pulled their boats up on shore and left everything, this verse says, and followed him. They left their boats in essence, they left their livelihood. They walked away from their vocation. They left the catch in the boats, which by most theologians estimate that's about a year's wage in the boats, in these two boats. It's about a year's wages. Average wage in America, is, I'm told now, is just under $35,000 a person. Would you walk away from thirty-five grand to follow him? Cash on the table, thirty-five grand to follow him. It's about a year's wages. They left a year's wages, left their whole livelihood, walked away from their families and followed him. Everything to them meant everything. To you and I, 
we, uh, we allow cultural Christianity to define everything for us. Um, I've told you parts of this story, or probably the whole story in the past, but I want to tell you a little snippet here. I've told you this story about my dad losing his mom and dad when he was 14 years old within very close proximity of each other. And having no other family, he gets his younger sister and brother to an orphanage in Franklin, just south of Nashville. Hitchhikes back home, leaves them down there <clears throat> under great duress. They're crying and don't leave us here. Uh, both of them are younger than him. And he fights that off, walks back away and thumbs his way back to Knoxville. I ask him about this story. He's, I ask him, I've heard him tell this story several times. I asked him one time, <clears throat> but wasn't that hard? <laughs> I mean, how did you do that? How did you leave a... How do you leave a young little sister crying, holding her hands up for a big brother, the only family she's got in the world, and a younger brother that's two or three years younger than him, saying, George, take us back. Don't leave us here, man. Don't don't do this. You're breaking up our family. We're the only family each of us has got. How do you do that? How how did you? He said, what's the hardest thing I've ever done? He said, but I knew they were better off without me than with me. I thought about that, and I thought, wow. What, a, what, a, what symbolism there should be in your and my world to saying everything means everything. I'm better off without this than I am with it. I'm better off without the trappings of, of life than I am with them if it costs leaving him. You and I should, should think more seriously about the ways in which we value things, the, the, the importance with which we give either relationships or, or possessions or whatever, we should, we should gather those kinds of things together on a regular basis and say, why? Why do I place the importance here that I place on it? Why do I give this more credence in my life, more credibility than it should have? Um, we are, we don't look like this scripture. I mean, I, I mean, that's just as blunt as I know how to say it. I don't either. Your pastor doesn't either. This, this really rubs against where I live most of the time because... I don't, I think sometimes I'm willing to give up a lot, but I don't give up very much. Um, mainly because I don't believe he's asked me to. I have given up things that he's asked me to and, and willingly done so. But boy, I don't, I don't walk with him in that way, do you? It's that, that's what he calls each of us to. He calls each of us to leave everything. To even symbolically hate, by comparison with our relationship with him, hate our, own, our, our very own families in compared to our love for him. Our love for him looks like hatred for everybody else by comparison. You and I don't live in that world. You and I live in a world that's neat, where Christianity and Christians are to be nice, and everything's to work out. Everything's to be okay. Everything's to, to go according to plan. Boy, that just doesn't look like these two stories at all, does it? This story of Peter and James and John following him, they pulled in the biggest catch they've got, and they walk away from the livelihood, the biggest catch they've ever made to follow a guy that they've never even known. They've not known him for 15 minutes. They left it all to follow him. And he tells these people following him to what being his disciple really looks like. Leaving everything to follow him, I think really what he's saying here is really leaving nothing for everything. Leaving everything behind is really leaving nothing for everything. Because he, as I said earlier, and I prayed earlier, 
He is in everything. He says he is the glue that the scripture says he's the glue that holds everything together. Every, all matter has its existence because of him. He spoke creation into existence. And so consequently, he is in and owns everything. And the quicker we see that, the better. Let me ask a couple of questions as we close that are kind of diagnostic things that are hard to answer and hard for me too. But I think this scripture forces us to consider these. Being a true disciple and a follower of Jesus, according to these, these texts here tonight in Luke 14, is a radical step out of cultural Christianity. It's a radical step out of the world you and I live in most of the time. It's a radical step out of, out of the world that most Christian churched people live in most of the time. These two stories, and they're true, they're not just, they're not just uh, metaphoric stories in the Scripture. These two stories, I think, tell us, well, let me ask this question. Those of you who call yourselves believers, who, who are followers of Jesus, Whoever had influence on you to lead you to Christ, whether it was a pastor or a, or a friend or a young life leader or somebody at school, or whoever told you or shared with you your need for the gospel, your need for a relationship with Jesus, did they share with you this kind of thing? Did they share with you what the cost would be to follow him? They didn't with me either. You know, I think we do a great injustice to our lost friends. I think we do a great injustice to relationships with people that we have, not to tell them the truth, to say, if you're going to follow him, you got to walk away, be willing to walk away from everything. You may literally walk away from everything, but you've got to be willing to walk away from everything. It's costly. He says you've got to take up your cross daily. You've got to take up a form of death and torture to follow him. <laughs> you really want to do that? That may sound like we're talking somebody out of, out of trust in him, and, and sometimes maybe that's necessary because we've got too many Christians of convenience. Well, Christians and convenience are rampant. Um, you, you, you have friends like that. I have friends like that. You're like that sometimes, and I am too. Where, well, when our faith is convenient, we're okay with it. When it's inconvenient, we're wondering where God's at. God, what are you doing? I'll take over now. Thanks. And I don't know if you and I are willing to take this step from culture Christianity into something that looks more, more radical um, or not, but that's what he calls us to. Now, probably if you're here, like most folks, you're here in one of these two states. You're here, and you're a follower, but you're following from a distance. And there's some advantages to following from a distance because just like driving, you, you, and you, if you keep your distance from the car uh, long enough in front of you, if it has blowout or rolls off the road or it has some kind of problem, you've got enough space to react. And most of us follow Jesus that way. We follow him from enough distance to where we've got, we've got enough space to react. If something, if we see him doing something or something starts to turn a different direction that's going to require more faith or more effort on our part, we've got enough room to adjust. We've got enough room to come up with a plan and react to what we see him doing spiritually. Whereas if we're walking with him step for step, we've got nobody to trust but him. We've got no reaction time but him. I think that's what these stories he's talking about call us to do. Leave the boat. Come walk with me. Come follow me. Come be a disciple of mine. So you're probably either here and following him from a distance or you're not a follower at all. And by that I mean you may, you may know some things about him, may have been in church, may know some scripture, may know some stories and some songs. But there's never been a point in time when you really trusted him as your Savior and by, by doing that invited him into your heart to rule and be master and lord and king. And 
So tonight, whether we're following from a distance or not following at all, I would encourage you to become a follower. And here's the point I, I'm trying to make. If you're following from a distance, I know, I know tonight you're not going to get all the way in the boat in one step. Most of us don't because we're, there's some things that are too important to us to do that, to take one huge step and leave everything behind and follow him. But I want to encourage you to take a step. Take a step away from cultural Christianity, away from its neatness and cleanness and niceness, and into something that's hard, but into something that takes us to a place deep enough to, with him that we'll never see anything, but or we'll never see it until we get there. That's hard. I realize it's hard. I want to encourage you, if you're following at a distance, to move closer. Close the gap. If you're not following at all, I want to encourage you tonight to, to trust him as your Savior. But I want to tell you the truth. <laughs> it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And if you really want to be a follower of his, well, there's, there's pain involved with it. There's some sacrifice involved with it. There's loss involved with it. Um, this is not a very encouraging message tonight, is it? That just dawned on me. Um, but it's nonetheless true. Now, it gets more encouraging as we go through these eight weeks, believe me. Boy, it's costly to follow him. And if we've been painted an otherwise picture, we've been painted the wrong picture. Or either we're following him out of convenience and not out of a sense of call. Well, I hope that changes tonight in me and in you. I hope we're willing to, to look at our walk and make some movement. Thanks again for listening to today's message from Cross Point Church, helping people navigate the journey toward an authentic, biblical, and contagious walk with Christ.